Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 152 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins, I want to let you know what's new in the shop at mistresscarrie.com. If you're looking to raise your cocktail game, Check out the new set of four slate cocktails in the war room coasters that are veteran made and made right here in Massachusetts. Head to the shop at mistresscarry.com where you'll find the slate coasters, the seven in one bartender tool, pint glasses, shot glasses, and so much more. Just log on to mistresscarry.com and click the shop. This week, my guest Billy Corrigan goes by many different names. Billy Corrigan, William Corrigan, William Patrick Corrigan, and we talked about all of them in this week's episode. The Smashing Pumpkins are getting ready to release Act 3 of their three-part rock opera, Autumn, this Friday, May 5th. And they're also heading out on the road on the World is a Vampire Tour with Stone Temple Pilots, Rival Sons, and Interpol. Billy was battling the flu when he checked in with me from Australia, and we talked about the band's touring, his songwriting methods. We also talked about the different names he uses, his parenting, being involved with the upcoming new Muppets Mayhem show. We talked about all the amazing music that came out in the 90s, the origins of alternative rock, his love of wrestling, his past battles with COVID, and so much more. So allow me to introduce you to Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins. 
Hello, Mr. Corgan. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. The first question I always ask is, where are you? Because bands, A, are always someplace cool, and B, most of the time, never even really have an idea of where they are. I know where I am. I'm in Sydney, Australia. I got a cold, so that's why I sound like crap. But um, yeah, we're, we're playing this crazy tour down here. I think about 10 shows. First time in Australia in eight years, so I definitely know where I am. You are in the future right now, so I'm just wondering if maybe you could give me some predictions on Powerball numbers or National uh, Wrestling Alliance predictions on matches so I can put some money down. You know, I used to go see a therapist, and um, I would tell him when I would visit with psychics, you know, and he'd always laugh and say, if they're, if they're really good psychics, give me, the, give me the Powerball numbers, and I'll let you know if they're a good psychic. <laughs> I mean, it would come in handy. Yes. And so he asked me to go and ask one of these psychics that I knew why they couldn't give me the Powerball numbers. And I believe the answer was something like, you know, um, you know, you can only get that information, which will help your destiny if it's not your destiny or something like that. So he found that totally hilarious. So, no, I can't help you there. Um, I'll tell you this, that, you know, um, the, the planet's still here on the, on the, on the, on your, in your future, so it's it survived another day. Okay, well, that at least will get me to sleep at night. Put the head down on the pillow, feel good about waking up. Yeah, it's it's been an interesting time of, like, uh, where is this planet going? So, um, you know, Australia had one of the most severe lockdowns um, during the pandemic, so I was curious to see how this uh, culture was responding. And I, I honestly, Australia reminds me of America about 20 years ago. People were just out and about and having a great time, and somehow they've come through it. So it's been really fun to be down here. A lot of artists are talking about um, wearing masks more when they travel for the exact reason you're talking about with your voice and the cold that you got is that you guys are traveling and especially with the singer, it's kind of hard if you get sick, not even COVID stuff, but just the flu to be able to sing. Are you taking more health precautions because of everything we learned from COVID, just to protect your voice. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I'm like a walk-in pharmacy over here, and obviously it didn't help. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, the whole thing, look, <laughs> I got enough problems in the world, but, you know, the U.S. government seems to finally be admitting that COVID was a, was a, a lab-developed type of thing. So if that's true, um, you know, those of us who had COVID and I had it a few times, um, got not really sure what it's done to my health, you know? So I can't tell if it's some, some after effect of that, but navigating the health uh, as an international touring artist post pandemic is really, really interesting. Well, you spent a um, lot of time on the road with Jane's addiction and Dave Navarro is dealing with long COVID right now. Yeah, that's a shame. Dave's such a great musician. All that said, and I love Dave so much, um, and I can never imagine Jane's without Dave. Um, they're out here with Josh Klinghoffer, um, and the band sounds just phenomenal. Uh, I had a conversation with Stephen Perkins the other day, and they're just ripping right now. So I think with Josh, they found this sort of the right musician to step in and, and, and you know, what's interesting about it is Josh brings his own flavor to it in a way that I think Dave, I think, would appreciate, and I certainly appreciate it. It feels like Jane's not because he's being Dave. It feels like Jane's because they're playing music. I want to address your name really quick, just because um, I've 
heard you call yourself Bill, Billy, William, William Patrick. I know when someone calls me Carrie Ann that most likely I'm in trouble. So do you have different parts of your life that call you different things? And what do you prefer people like me call you? Well, the way I see it in my brain is um, Billy's like my stage name at this point. You know, it's like how everybody knows me. And uh, for anybody uh, who knows wrestling, we mostly in wrestling call people by their stage names. Even if I know somebody's real name, I'll still call them by their gimmick name. So to use the term, Billy's my gimmick name. William's my real name. So if you call me Billy, great. I'll still respond and it doesn't bother me. Um, and But my friends call me William. And I've asked people to call me William because that's, I guess, what I'm comfortable with at 56. But um, and it's been a kind of a funny journey how we got to William. But I, I kind of blame Puff Daddy, you know. I thought it was kind of funny how he kept changing his name. So I was like, oh, I'm just going to change my name and see what happens. And it turned into this weird thing. Like people wrote articles making fun of me for changing my name from Billy to William, even though William's my real name. Like there were literally articles like, oh, he wants to be called William now. Like, like as if I was being posh or something. <laughs> so I, so me being me, the wrestling promoter and me, of course, I've made it worse by adding to it. Now I'm William, now I'm William Patrick Gordon, which is my real, real name. That's what they call me in wrestling. But everybody calls me Billy. It's, it's all good. Well, I, I think the poshness when you're going to come out with a three-part rock opera, it kind of, <laughs> it has that kind of air that, that it, it makes sense. It's like, pardon me, I, I'm, I'm releasing a three-part opera. You can call me William. And it makes sense. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Look, I don't mind playing the heel, you know. <laughs> I think, look, journalists through the years, journalists through the years have always had a bit of a, a go at me because they say you're too serious. And my retort was always the same. I'm in a band called the Smashing Pumpkins. Like the band's name is a joke. Do you understand the whole thing? Like I'm the ice cream truck driver. I'm the guy in the bat costume. You understand? It's all a joke. It doesn't mean we don't take the music seriously, but we never took all that other stuff seriously. Um, I remember an interview with, um, gosh, the, the, the bass, uh, I'm tired. It's the bassist from Deep Purple. Um, his name's on the tip of my tongue. Anyway, he used to produce albums, and he produced a, a Judas Priest album. Uh, and he talks in this interview that I saw, K.K. Downing was out doing his his uh, guitar parts, but he was doing it like he was in concert, what they call throwing shapes. <laughs> and so he asked he asked K.K., what, what are you doing out there? He goes, well, I'm getting into the music. That's how I play, you know. He'd never seen anyone in the studio act like they were on stage, you know. Are you talking about Glenn Hughes? No, no, uh, before before Glenn Hughes, the original um, Deep Purple bassist. Tommy Bolin? No, no. He, he was the guitar player that replaced Richie oh, Black. There's so many I, of them. I, I'm going to kick myself that I can't remember his name. It's just this is a side John of ages Lord. right here. Yes. Okay. No, he's the he's, he's the keyboardist. God, You're close. I'm trying to just rattle off every Deep Purple name I can think of. Yes. Ian Gillen's the singer. So we're down to one name. Roger Glover? Yes. Yes. Roger Glover was producing P Priest, and this is the story. So. I, I want to talk to you about Autumn because when the when the press release came out, there are bands that have a hard time, especially in this day and age with technology, about releasing a body of work in a full album. It seems like the industry is transitioning into a more single-based thing, kind of the way that 45s kind of started it all. 
you decide to go the complete opposite way where you're like, we're not just going to do an album. We're going to do three, but it's one and we're going to release it in phases. Was, was the decision to do that because more music kept coming or was the project idea there before you started writing the songs, which came first? Well, I think when you're doing a 33 song record, you sort of grapple as you're making it with, okay, right. Even when this thing's finished, how do you want people to listen to it? Because if you expect them to sit down in one go and listen to 33 songs, it's probably not going to happen. So you're setting this thing up for failure. If I, if I called you on the phone and said, Hey, uh, this band's playing, they're going to do this crazy 33 song project. We're going to go, we're going to take some edibles. We're going to sit in the audience and listen. It's going to take about three hours. You say, Oh, it's like going to a long movie. I, I'm willing to take that chance. Asking somebody at home on their phone, to listen to a 33 song record without a text coming in without a little kid running in the room and saying, mommy, mommy, where's my shoe? It's just not going to happen. So I thought it was cool to let the pumpkin fan base in on the process. Why we released the music with the idea that most of the world wouldn't pay attention until it really came out. So at least when that record came out in full, the guy that rolls his eyes and read it and says, why the hell do I want to listen to a 33 song record? There'll at least be somebody standing there going, I've actually listened to it. I've taken the time to know the story. You should listen to these five tracks first. And if you like them, then maybe you want to listen to the whole record. I thought that was a more effective way in this modern world. But I started with the fact that 99% of people the first time were not going to sit down and listen to it. It just was too much to take on. I talked to a lot of songwriters and I'll preface it by saying I don't have the ability to write songs myself, which is why I asked the questions about the craft of it, because I'm so fascinated with how there can be nothing and then there's something and it filters through everyone's brain differently. So for you, is it a melody? Is it a riff? Are, are you keeping notebooks of lyrics? Like how does a song start for you? Um, it usually starts for me with a guitar riff or a, a piano part or something, something very simple. And something about it just gets my curiosity or makes me feel something or reminds me of something like, you know, the time uh, somebody kicked me in the shin or something. You know, you just, you have a flashback of a memory, like a feeling. And once I have that, 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 I don't know, it's almost like attaching a picture to an email. That picture attached to the thought never lives, leaves me. I always have that. And so it guides me through the song, like what I'm after, but I couldn't explain to you what it is. And then what's really weird is I'll record a song. Of course, it takes forever to record. We'll release it. I'll get interviewed about it. And then 20 years later, I'll listen to the song and I'll go, oh, my God, it's not what I thought it was about. It's about this other thing. And it wasn't even on my brain when I wrote it. It blows my mind because it's this really strange process. And I think I've written somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 to 500 songs. Um, in fact, even today, um, I helped Code Orange uh, write one of their songs recently. And I'm, I think I'm going to be on the song singing a little bit. So they were sending me the song. And, you know, it's just like, it's such a magical thing. And, and I think that's why people grapple with how to explain what it is. Because, or here's a, here's a better analogy. And analogies never work. But it's like if you ever pulled a string on a sweater and it, you just keep pulling and it ruins the sweater. That's what writing a song is like. You pull a string and you, you just keep pulling and pulling and pulling and it's like, what is this thing that I'm after? And it kind of won't leave you. You are now on the other side of a microphone with your 33 podcast. And there's been 
a lot of going back to what you were talking about, about realizing the meaning in songs. And you've been pretty candid about where a lot of the inspiration for some of your most personal songs came from and, and childhood pain and trauma. Um, is it weird for you now talking about those things that I think a lot of Smashing Pumpkins fans kind of had an idea about through the lyrics and now you're talking so openly about it all these years later? Well, first off, um, doing your gig is a lot harder than I thought. So Thank I'll, you! I'll, I'll, all credit to you. Thank it's you. not as easy as you think. When you get behind the mic, it's actually a lot harder. So all credit to you. Um, to your question, that's that's tough. Um, gosh, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Um, because I, here's the thing. My first experiences in the world, in the real world, were really with journalists. You know, we were just some Chicago band and we go to New York. And now we're dealing with some hipster writer who's having to go with us because we play guitar solos. And to him, this is the worst fucking thing you ever heard in your life. How does an alternative band play guitar solos? And we're just like, we love Rainbow. What's the big deal, right? <laughs> you know I mean? That's how we thought of it. Like, you know, we would say Black Sabbath and they would roll their eyes as if we were like calling down Satan himself, you know? So my first experiences of talking about my music my very personal music was to be made fun of and bullied like oh you're too emo you're too sensitive you're too is this an act people wrote articles accusing me of making up my childhood for to sell records and by the way uh and i only say this with humility i haven't talked about 90 percent of the shit that happened to me in my life people don't know 90 percent. they only know like the like the the teasers so when people kind of come at you say, oh, you aren't who you say you are. You aren't this guy. This is a made up character. The, the, like it's about the real me, not the fake me. Um, you withdraw. At some point, you just become more carny about what you say and what you don't say. So viewing my own podcast, I feel like I feel safe enough to just say what I want to say. And then if I don't like what I say, of course, I can edit it out. But at this point, I haven't edited out anything. I just let my heart speak and. I feel like the audience at least knows me enough as a person to understand that I'm not a perfect person, but you know, I can be real if I need to be. Do you think that great art can exist and be created without pain? And I mean, yes, in any format you do. Yes, absolutely. In fact, I would argue that pain is the greatest detriment to great artists. People want to be inspired. We all have that sad song that we go to when we got a heartbroken or something. But if you look at the music that truly endures, it's the music that inspires. So the music and, that you're making now from a place of having beautiful children and love, does it change the way that you write music? Are you surprised by the songs that are coming out of you now? A little bit. I feel like I haven't really written about it yet. I mean, I've touched on it. I did a soul album called Old Lala, where I spoke about being a father for the first time and things like that. But I don't think I've totally gone there yet. I think any parent knows that you live with this great sense of vulnerability. Um, I'll tell a quick story. I knew I was a crazy parent when I was walking my son in New York on a beautiful spring day and he was in the stroller. He was only you know, a couple years old and we were waiting at a stoplight to cross the street and a cab was coming and the cab was a little too close to the curb and my brain went, if this car veers towards your child, you need to throw yourself in front of the car and, and 
boot the kid out of the way. And I thought, I really am a parent now because I just thought, I just had a conscious thought that I would give my life for my kids. So when you deal with that kind of vulnerability, that's not something I'm in a quick hurry to get into in, in the world, but I know it's something on my heart and I know that's something that would, I could share with people that they could relate to. But, you know, rock and roll is a brutal business. You know, it's easier to sing about uh, what do we what do you, what do we always say doing cocaine off a stripper's ass or yeah. something? You know, it's easier to sing about those things. I always say that rock and roll wouldn't exist if women weren't bitches. So everybody's welcome for the inspiration. You're welcome. I've gotten my fair share of songs from my my uh, my my poor relationships. Let's put it that way. <laughs> Um, I talk about songwriting as a craft all the time. And when you're a songwriter, I think you listen to music differently and you experience other people's art differently. Is there a song from someone else that you look at and say, well, that is just a perfect example of songwriting. If you look up songwriting in the dictionary, that's a song that's so perfectly crafted. I wish I wrote it. Do you, is there a song like that for you? Oh, there's hundreds of songs like that. I mean, there's Motown songs, there's Beatles songs, there's Bob Dylan songs. I'm just in total awe of, you know, do you want more information? I don't want to bore you with it. No, no, no. I want you to give me an example and I want you to tell me why you love it so much. Um, For example, um, Strawberry Fields by John Lennon, you know, although it's credited to Lennon McCarty, it's pretty much a John Lennon song. He writes that song on an acoustic guitar. You can find the bootleg of it, or I think they released it at some point. It's just him sitting on his bed singing the song. There's no Mellotrons and all that goofy stuff that they late added later to make it all psychedelic, right? It's just a really beautiful, simple song. But somehow he sings a song about childhood, about how I'm different and I'm not like everyone else. And it doesn't really have a chorus. If you really think about it, it doesn't have one of those going to the club, come join me, you know, repeat. He starts off by saying, let me take you down because I'm going to Strawberry Fields. That's probably the best hook in the song, but he doesn't really have a chorus. And yet a few years ago, I think it was Mojo Magazine. I think they rated it the number one single of all time. It's like somehow in breaking all the rules, he made something that's completely beautiful, timeless, captures the moment of childhood and the wistfulness that he feels looking back at his life. And he wrote that song when he was like 26 years old. Like, how do you do that? But that's why he was so talented. He could do that. He could break all the rules. Bob Dylan, Mr. Ta- you know, not Mr. Tambourine, Amanda, like a Rolling Stone, seven minutes long. Queen Bohemian Rhapsody, seven minutes long. You break every rule in the book. And I'm sure they had somebody go, stand there going, you know, it's a bit too long. The joke was in the Doesn't Bohemian matter. Rhapsody movie. It's not going to be on the radio. Yeah. Yeah, I worked with Roy Thomas Baker, who did that song, you know, and um, Roy told me that a lot of Queen's music was a reaction to the way the press treated them, that the press said the band was too camp and too much of a novelty act. So Freddie's reaction to it was to make to be more camp and more of a novelty act and to become more like Queen, the Queen that we know. That's what I love about rock and roll is every time somebody sits there and tells you you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, you do it. 50 people told me don't do a 33 song record suicide and i said i just don't care what 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 i said was why did i go through all this to get here to be afraid i don't want i don't want to live like that the whole world's afraid of a, of a bug we can't see i'm sitting here with a cold because somebody coughed on me or something you know what i mean you can't live like that you just gotta go man you just gotta go i'm gonna go play tonight for 
7,000 people with a cold. I'm just going to go do it. You know, God knows what I got to do to get there. You know, some kind of Tibetan steam or something. But. <laughs> well, before I let you go, you are, you are collaborating with, in my opinion, the greatest rock and roll band of all time. I have been a psychotic Muppets fan since I was a very small <laughs> kid. They're back there right now. Awesome. And I had the opportunity to talk to Alice Cooper about what it was like to be on the original show. And he said it was the greatest experience he's had in his entire career, which says a lot for a guy like Alice Cooper. You're going to yeah, be wow. in the Muppet Mayhem. What was the experience like for you, not only as a, as a person that grew up with the Muppets as a kid, but now as a, as a dad, and there's this whole new generation of kids growing up with the Muppets? Well, when I got asked, I was really honored. And the first thing I said, you know, my manager said, do you want to do it? And I said, I got to do it for my kids. Because this is the type of thing my kids could understand, like daddy's on TV with the Muppets. So that's why I did it. But to the credit of the people who do the show, they were so nice. They were so cool. I'll tell you, the hardest thing doing the Muppets is talking to the Muppet. Because there's a great puppeteer down below doing the voice and obviously do, you know, manipulating the, 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 the character. And my natural tendency is I wanted to talk to that guy or that girl. And I had to have direct pull me aside and say, you know, very L.A., uh, William, uh, you know, we love what you're doing. It's, it's great. But you've got to talk to the Muppet. Because, <laughs> you know, they're watching your eye line. You know, your eye line's at the floor where the guy or the girl's down there. They're amazing. You watch them work because I got to watch them work, obviously, outside my scene. Amazing. Super talented people. So funny. So nice. What a great atmosphere, great characters, just a total honor to be involved. Alice said that in the rehearsals of the original show that they would not speak to him if it wasn't through a Muppet. So after a few days, he just started talking to the Muppets as if they were real. And he and he couldn't believe that he actually kind of got sucked into it like that. So I'm so yeah, one of the Yeah, one of the actors on the show told me, because I apologize because I blew a couple scenes. And the actor pulled me aside and said, listen, I'm so used to it. I don't even talk to the real people anymore. I only talk to the Muppet. <laughs> I love it. Uh, you're playing shows with Jane's Addiction. This summer, you're going out with Stone Temple Pilots and Rival Sons. and Interpol, too. Don't forget. And Interpol. Interpol. Yeah. And it again, it kind of underlines what I think a lot of younger people are starting to realize is that there was so much great, groundbreaking, amazing music that came out of the 90s. And so many of those artists are still making amazing music today. The guys from STP included, the guys from Jane's included. What was it about that decade and all of the creativity? Is it just that there were so many great artists around that you guys were all inspired to kind of compete with each other? How did that work? Yeah, I think you really have to go back to the late seventies, and uh, Seymour Stein of Sire Records is somebody who should be really credited, uh, who just recently passed away. I didn't know Seymour, but some of my friends were very close to him. Um, so my, uh, my condolences to his family because a, a guy like Seymour, very early in the late seventies, would sign bands like the Ramones, and then and then Talking Heads, and he believed that those bands could be as big as any band, when no, a lot of people didn't. Of course, now we look back, it's easy. Oh, yeah, the Ramones, Talking Heads. But at the time, it was very, it seemed very strange to put them in a major label system. 
So we were really the beneficiaries of a real buildup in the 80s of great alternative music. Depeche Mode, The Cure, Sisters of Mercy. I mean, so many bands. And obviously, Jane's was at the very end of that 80s kind of thing when their first music came out. So by the time, and Bad Brains. So by the time the early 90s thing rolled out, and never mind kind of punched the door open, I mean, it really was New Order. And there were so many bands that set that thing up. And there were moments, you know, uh, The Cure playing the Rose Bowl, you know, in the 80s. And there were moments and flashes of that that was possible. But it wasn't until Nevermind that everyone was like, okay, this is a new business model. Being a weirdo is a good thing. And everybody, of course, ran out and got a funny hair color. And, you know, some of us, it never went away. <laughs> yeah. But here's the thing I think it's really easy. If you look at the great bands out of the 90s, you know, whether it's one or two people in each band, the names are all easily memorable now. Cornell, Lane Staley, um, of course, Kurt, um, Eddie Vedder, um, Chester Benning, uh, Bennington. Um, it, those are all A-level people. You know what I mean? Those are all A-level talents. But at the time, there was a lot of skepticism from the mainstream kind of world. Like, oh, what's this grunge and all this? Are they going to be the next Led Zeppelin? I remember people saying, oh, is Pearl Jam going to be the next Led Zeppelin? Yeah, Pearl Jam was going to be the next Pearl Jam. That's the thing. Led Zeppelin didn't give a shit about what came before. That's why they became Led Zeppelin. There's an old saying, you know, if you see a boot on the road, chop them in half with an axe. And what that really means is... If you spend all your time worshiping your idols, you don't, you never become anything. You got to become your own Buddha, right? So that's all great rock stars are insane, you know? I mean, we're a crazy bunch of people because we think that what we have to say or share is more important than everybody else. And if you're talented, it works out. And if you're not, well, you end up working at Starbucks. But the people that got through in that generation, they made an impact. The songs endure and people are still influenced by the music. So it's no longer a question of what was it? You know, I think now you're just into people arguing about who is better, which is always a fun one. Well, I think when you get music fans around those those what's better fights are always a blast for people that love music. Yeah, I love doing them, too. I just don't like being in them. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the Thank time you. on the other side of the planet to hang out with me. Feel better. And uh, we'll you. see you this summer with STP and Interpol and Rival Sons. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks again. Bye-bye. You got it. See ya. There he is, Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins. Their massive new project, Autumn, is completed this Friday with Act 3 and the release of the massive box set. You can also see the Smashing Pumpkins on the road this year with Stone Temple Pilots, Rival Sons, and Interpol. And if you check out the show notes of this week's episode, you'll find all the links to find Billy Corgan and the Smashing Pumpkins online to get more information. You'll also find the link to this episode's corresponding playlist. I put a playlist together for every full-length episode of the podcast that features all of my guest music and all the other artists and songs that we referenced in the interview. You'll also find all of my links as well. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, and share the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the sit rep, which is all of your rock news, music headlines, and entertainment info boiled down to about five minutes. And you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. 
Join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. And you can always listen to the Mistress Carrie radio show. Get the news on all that and more at mistresscarrie.com. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.